Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the McDonald Laurie Institute's uh, weekly podcast, Pod Bless Canada. My name is Sean Spear. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute, and I'm pleased to have with me Jill Gallick, who, amongst her various titles, uh, is an award winning screenwriter, former uh, president of the Writers Guild of Canada, and most recently, the executive director of Women in View. Uh, Jill is one of Canada's leading thinkers when it comes to broadcasting and cultural policy, and we're so thrilled to have her on the podcast today. Uh, welcome, Jill. Thanks, Sean. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Jill, we met uh, a couple of months ago, and I have to tell you, it was one of the most engrossing conversations I've had about uh, the state of the broadcasting and cultural industries in Canada, the interaction between the industries and public policy, and how to kind of reconceptualize public policy as we grapple with new technologies and new opportunities for Canadian industry. And I, I just had enjoyed it so much that I thought it was something that our, our listeners would get a lot from. So uh, that's why I, I'm so grateful to have you here. Well, I really enjoy talking about this subject, so it's great to have, you know, the opportunity to have the conversation. Maybe uh, by way of background, why don't you tell us a bit about your career evolution and what has brought you uh, to these issues and made you such a passionate champion for uh, the industries and the intersection between um, Canadian culture and public policy? Well, first of all, I've been a television writer for the last 30-odd years. I started my career working in children's television and I worked on Canadian Sesame Street for many years among other kids shows and I've had the opportunity to write widely for television so I've done you know soap opera kids tween uh, cop shows so I've worked extensively, but I've also been very interested and very involved with the union, the Writers Guild of Canada, and very interested in creators' rights and how we conceive of television. Just some of the other things I do is I I, uh, I teach a, an advanced television writing course at York, so I have the opportunity to work with a lot of young creators. And uh, now I'm executive director of Women in View, which is advocating for women within the film and television industry. And I think this is a very interesting time to make change in that area. How I came to be interested in... Uh, policy and advocating. I don't know. I just am. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so fascinating is I mentioned earlier that that we uh, met a couple of months ago and had uh, just a fascinating conversation about your vision for uh, the role of public policy and um, support for the cultural sector. And then I think almost as we broke off that day, then Heritage Minister, Minister Julie, announced a sweeping review of broadcasting and telecommunication policy, which of course is occurring now. We'll see if the change in, in minister in the, in, in the department in any way slows or transforms that review. But it, it just seemed like such a fortuitous time to give uh, you a platform to talk about and help people understand the way in which the current policy framework ought to be revisited and ways in which public policy changes can be enacted coming out of this reform process or this review process rather to really position Canadian cultural 
um, content and cultural products to be competitive in the global marketplace. So it was fortuitous timing that we met just as this review uh, was, was being launched. Before we get into your vision for reform, do you mind just helping listeners understand the kind of nuts and bolts of how the system currently works and why? Um, you think time is right for fairly fundamental change? Well, let's take it one step at a time. Let's just talk about the beginnings of television and the history of, of how the system works. Television was originally not streamed on the internet, but was originally carried on the airwaves. So the airwaves are considered public property. So the government made a deal with the broadcasters who, were, who wanted to use those public airwaves and said, you can use the public airwaves in return for doing these things. So among them was, you know, promoting and creating Canadian culture. Uh, the, the Broadcasting Act kind of lays out some of what the role is of the broadcaster, what what services they have to provide the Canadian people with. So it's it's recognizing that broadcasting is important for Canadian national identity and cultural sovereignty, and that it should serve Canadian men, women, and children. It talks very, the Broadcasting Act talks very deeply about linguistic duality, equal rights, the special place of the Indigenous people in society, about multiculturalism and diversity. So the broadcasters were sort of offered the public airwaves in return for promoting all these things and serving the Canadian people. That's such an important point to make, that uh, when the Broadcasting Act is enacted, as you say, first of all, it was enacted with the particular in a particular technological context. Yes. Uh, and secondly, as you say, uh, well, it, well, the act governs um, private operators in a private market. It infused the market with some non-commercial objectives or priorities that these commercial players needed to accept in exchange for drawing on the public goods as it relates to the kind of transmission of basic broadcasting. That's really the framework that uh, that was created at, at this critical juncture in the history of Canadian broadcasting. Exactly. Now let's look at what the broadcasters got in return for that. So television for most of its existence was driven by advertising revenue. So in the early days, television was free. We just turned on the television and the programming was free and it was entirely supported by advertising revenue. So in fact, in that kind of equation, the audience is actually the commodity that the broadcaster is selling to the advertiser. So you want you want to create programs that will bring big audiences in so you can sell these big audiences to the advertiser. And in Canada, we had something called the simulcast. So Canadian broadcasters could buy U.S. programming that was that had big draws, and they would just take the signal that was coming in from the U.S. and replace the American advertising 
with the Canadian advertising. So when Canada gave you a license to use an airwave, you actually got all that simulcast money and it was extremely uh, an extremely profitable business. But the downside for you as a broadcaster was you couldn't do that simulcasting thing 24 hours a day. You had to make Canadian programming as well because that was your payment for using these free airwaves. What you're referring to there is the Canadian content expectations or quotas that were a condition for the broadcasting license. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. It, it, it was such an aha moment for me when you talk about the business model of the era, uh, the focus on large-scale audiences in the name of maximizing ad revenue. It's what what some listeners may not appreciate is that in an era of limited competition, there were millions and millions of eyeballs watching programs and channels at any given time. And that in this world of proliferation of options, uh, whether it's in traditional broadcasting or now, as you alluded, using different formats, the size of the audiences has has changed pretty dramatically over time. Is, is, that, is that right? Yes. The size of the audience originally in television was, I mean, viewers were very concentrated on a very few channels. So in Canada, we would have had probably two and then three commercial channels, then CBC. And then in the U.S., there were only originally three channels as well, NBC, ABC, and CBS. It's only when we added cable television to the mix that things began to change. There was the ability for us to have many, many more channels, but we were also beginning to pay for television now because you had to pay for your cable signal. So that was the beginning of a new form of television. The audience began to pay to get a cable, but there was still ad support to the industry. So again, we were still trying to bring in as many, as big an audience as we could to every program because of the ad revenue. Then part of what happened when cable was introduced was in the U.S., they started to have channels like HBO. HBO was a subscription service. So in addition to your regular cable bill, you had to pay extra money to get HBO. It was the first time anyone had to pay for a channel. And so HBO had this dilemma. How do we convince people to pay for something that's always been free? And what they did, uh, what part of what they did was they decided to have television series that were created by creators who were given complete artistic license to make their shows. And so that was um, a kind of special programming. You were getting something very special when you went to HBO. It was more, maybe it was more artistic. So those shows were things like, Larry Sanders by the comedian Gary Shandling uh, and eventually involved into The Sopranos and Mad Men. Uh, all, all the shows we begin to think of as the golden age of television started to come at this time because instead of creating shows that were intended to sell eyeballs to advertisers. These were series that were supposed to bring 
audiences in that the audiences were paying for for themselves. So it was a whole new kind of television. When one thinks about it this way, as I said earlier, um, when you describe this evolution to me, it was such an aha moment for me, you know, that the period of fragmentation, which has enabled this explosion of new content and really put consumers in the driver's seat as opposed to being the commodity, it, uh, you know, it's an exciting moment. But what's what's extraordinary to me as someone interested in public policy is in a lot of ways, the public policy framework hasn't evolved with this process of fragmentation and the transformation of the industry and the role of the consumer. You know, in, in so many ways, I think one of the, the, the problems we encounter in the world of public policy is just this delay in the policy framework evolving to reflect these, these broader transformations. You mentioned earlier, uh, or you alluded earlier to the Canadian content quotas and and uh, how the Canadian broadcasters not only were responsible for producing a minimum amount of Canadian content, but also I think you alluded to the way in which um, that content was financed or subsidized. Do you want to just spend a bit of time elaborating on, on, on that? Well, I'm not sure exactly how the policy came to be, but because the Canadian broadcasters are required to create a certain amount of Canadian content. And there evolved a fund that was to pay for it in part, to help them pay for it in part. So uh, that fund is now called the Canada Media Fund. And uh, it is it is money that comes partly from broadcaster revenues and partly from the Canadian government, so the taxpayer. So this this fund is both private and public money, I would say. The broadcaster has to buy most of his content or her content from independent Canadian producers. They can't make it all in-house. That's one of the the rules is they can't make all their production. They have to buy it from uh, private, independent production companies. So an independent production company goes to them, they pitch a series, the broadcaster green lights it, the broadcaster puts in approximately 25%, that's called a license fee. And then they have an envelope, a certain amount of money at the CMF, the Canada Media Fund, that they can draw on to pay for part of this content. So then the producer goes to Canada Media Fund and gets another portion of their financing from them. So it means that the broadcaster does not have to pay for the entire production themselves. On one hand, as you say, it means that a portion of the Canadian content that the broadcasters are mandated to deliver is subsidized through the Canada Media Fund. A portion of which comes from the taxpayer. So as as taxpayers, we are actually paying for a portion of the content that we allow the broadcasters to make in return for using our airwaves. Yes. Um, but the in, one of the insights that I really drew from you that, again, for me, has led to kind of fundamentally rethinking the role of public policy as it relates to the cultural industries is that these resources that, that reside in the media fund are, are really directed and driven 
by the broadcasters. They're the ones in conjunction with producers who tap the fund. So in other words, uh, someone in your position as a screenwriter or other members of the Writers Guild or the other, um, the other uh, unions in the cultural industries, they are ultimately at the behest of the broadcasters in terms of accessing these public resources. Do you mind just um, elaborating on, on that? Well, the broadcasters really have total control of what kind of Canadian content is made right across the board. Because although we have this very robust funding system in Canada, you cannot access it without a broadcaster's green light, as the green light is what we call it in in television. So the broadcasters not only choose what shows they put on the air, but they also choose what shows can get access to that funding. So it's all funneled into these into the broadcasters. In jurisdictions, Jill, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but in other jurisdictions uh, where there is a role for public resources, I'm thinking of Israel and uh, Australia and other jurisdictions where the government has recognized um, that support of domestic cultural content or cultural output is a public good. Uh, are you are you familiar if in these other jurisdictions, public monies flow directly to the broadcaster as opposed to the creator? Well, I don't know. And it's a really it's a very, very good question how it works in other jurisdictions. But, you know, just to be clear, in Canada, the money doesn't flow directly to the broadcaster, even though the broadcaster controls it. It flows to the independent producer who is creating content for the broadcaster just but they're all but they can only tap the resources because the broadcaster has essentially said that that's a product that we intend to buy and it's that decision that triggers the cmf to make the contribution to the to the production house is that is that correct that that it that is absolutely correct that is absolutely correct. you know look into how and why you think the system ought to be uh, reformed, and as as you know, and as listeners will soon learn, I'm predisposed and partial to your vision. But to be fair, as someone who uh, previously was head of the Writers Guild, which represents, I think, more than 2,000 Canadian writers, there would not be universal support for um, for reshaping or changing um, the model that we currently have. Yes. So to be fair to the other side, if I can put it that way, what would be the reasons or the arguments made for preserving, by and large, the, the status quo? I think one of the things is that we need proof of marketability before we give money to a show. So who who is to determine which shows, which creators, which producers would get the money. You need something to trigger that funding, some gatekeeper to say, yes, these are the this is the right show, these are the right people, this is the a good team, this is a great concept. Who who's gonna make that decision? We don't want juries of bureaucrats doing it. So the broadcaster saying, I'm gonna air that and, and put money into it has been the natural trigger that we've used all these years. That's a great answer. So in the absence of a better mechanism, the fact that the resources are conditional on the broadcaster planning to ultimately air the content is 
is, is, is for better or for worse, um, the mechanism that we've relied upon to say, yes, these public resources ought to go to this project because of viability. Right. Now, before we go on, maybe we should circle back to sort of the history of television and bring us up to the present day, which is... Sorry, I'm, I'm just so motivated by your reform vision that I, I apologize if I'm, if I'm rushing us forward. But yes, please. No, be, no, but I think that so now we kind of understand how television is financed in, in, in Canada. But now let's, let's look at what the marketplace looks like now, because, you know, the, the broadcasting model has really changed. I mean, we got as far as cable television, but now we're into the world of streaming services and the internet. And the way you and I watch television is also changing tremendously. The audience doesn't go gather in, you know, the whole family in the living room to watch, you know, a show that everybody loves at 9 p.m. That's that kind of appointment viewing, whole family thing. It's a minor part of how we watch television and how we'll watch in the future. Now we watch television on our laptops, on our tablets, on our phones, and it's a very it's very, it's much more personal, intimate kind of television viewing. You don't watch as much with other people as you watch all by yourself, almost the way you would read a book. And you keep watching chapter after chapter, episode after episode until kind of the time runs up. So television, if the way we consume it through Netflix or any of these other streaming services, YouTube and so on, is fair, or the catch-up services online is very different than the way we used to watch it when the policy was first created. Like we, I mean, you said after we talked about cable that policy hasn't kept up. We're way past cable now. We're into into streaming, and a lot of these services are coming to us from outside the country and therefore don't fall under the regulatory system. If you watch Canadian shows on Netflix, it's not because they're regulated to be there. As you said, not only are they not subjected to um, the content quotas because they fall outside of the Broadcasting Act, they're also not part of the, the media fund, either as contributors or in terms of being able to draw on those resources. And Reasonable people can agree or disagree on on whether that's justified. But to come back to the, our earlier conversation about how the media fund resources are accessed, it means that if you, the writer, are working on a project that is financed by the media fund, you are basically limited to your output being aired on the broadcaster involved in that project, and that's it. Is that is that a correct way to describe it? I, I apologize if I said it a bit clumsily. Okay, well, well, in order to access Canada Media Fund or public funding for television, you must have a Canadian broadcaster. That's that's all. You must have one. Now, they might partner with Netflix, as CBC has done with Anne with an E and other properties. Right now, there are quite a few properties that Netflix is partnering with Canadian broadcasters on. And in those cases, that could trigger uh, public funding. But um, you can't go to Netflix with your great series idea and get a green light from them and then come back and access 
that funding system. Yeah, and the reason why I mentioned that, Jill, again, to draw on our conversation from some time ago, is that, you know, in some ways, the model really places limits on the ability of our cultural industries to look outward, to to look at opportunities to engage the global marketplace, to leverage some of these new and emergent platforms. Because at the end of the day, because the funding is associated with the broadcaster and, and in turn the production house, as opposed to the creator, you really are kind of pushed into a particular set of options that, as I say, kind of limit the opportunity for competing on in, in, the, in the global marketplace? Well, the global marketplace and the demand for content is exploding. We can now access the entire world and, and, and that market is open to us. And, and the demand for content is really huge. And Canada is incredibly well-placed to take advantage of that. We write, we write in English. We use a model of creating television, the showrunner model that is very, very similar to the American, the way the Americans create content. And of course, they're the world leader. We understand their comedy and their way of writing. But in some cases, the Canadian sensibility plays better in other countries around the world outside of the US. So we're extremely well placed to take advantage of that that global market that's now opened up. And it's a profitable marketplace. It used to be that in television series, you had to make 65 episodes and then get into, into syndication in order to make a profit. Now, series of 10 episodes can be in profit after the first season. So it's, it's a very robust and growing and changing industry. But our broadcasters, who we must serve in order to uh, access the Canadian funding model, are back in the advertiser business. So when they're looking for product, they're looking for a kind of product that will bring in a big audience and will attract advertising dollars. That's not the kind of product the place in this new global market that is serving people who watch television on uh, alone in their bedroom 10 episodes at a time you know it's a different it's a different kind of television broadcasters need shows about doctors and lawyers you know that traditional kind of television whereas streamers in the global market want to go to new places where we haven't been before a different kind of series a series that's more like a book where every episode takes you someplace different rather than being you know exactly the same format every episode so what we have here is this incredible potential of the Canadian market uh, the Canadian industry you know we have talented crews experienced creators all this experience that the Canadian funding system has helped us create we have this great funding system but we have a, a trigger mechanism to access that funding that makes us make the wrong kind of content for the global market. I think that's a great summation of your principal insight about a policy framework that remains stuck in a different era 
and one that, as I said earlier, pushes our cultural creators into a particular model and precludes them from leveraging and taking advantage of all of these key ingredients that, as you say, we seem to have. So it begs the question, as the federal government undertakes this review, and maybe at the end, we can talk a little bit about some of the obstacles to reform. But before getting there, do you want to just talk a bit, uh, Jill? I, I know it's difficult to summarize such a complicated issue with so many moving parts, but to give people a bit of a flavor of what you would do if you were the minister or the prime minister for a day? <laughs> on cultural content, well. I mean, not on everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Um, what I see is needed to meet this new marketplace is creator-driven shows. And, you know, I'm going back to that HBO model that changed television so completely and drove us into the golden age of television was that HBO really said to creators, here, you have carte blanche, make the show that you really want to make. And these shows were authentic. They were, they, they, they gave us just a new kind of emotional and dramatic and funny television that audiences have really responded to. And we continue to see that in Netflix originals and the kinds of shows that Amazon is making. These shows that are driven by the creators and create this, this new relationship for television, which is between the storyteller and the audience. Because remember, it used to be the audience was the commodity, but now when you when you let a creator really drive their sh own show and, and be responsible for the creative, it reestablishes that relationship between creator and audience, which is the natural relationship. So in order to do this, what we need to do is give creators the time and the resources to create original programming. And the way I think we should be doing this is we should be modeling it on the accelerator programs that are used in the technology sector, where they create these very intense eight-week or 10-week programs where they uh, a number of creators come together and have resources and time and money in order to develop their properties until they're market ready. And they get market intelligence brought into them and different kinds of resources. And then at the end, there's a showcase in which you bring in the buyer so that you can finance the programs right away. So in, uh, in other words, you'd, be, you'd, you'd proposed, if I understand you correctly, to shift the media fund uh, in particular and the way we think about supporting Canadian cultural content from being broadcaster driven to be driven by the creator or the producer who we would support directly severed from any particular broadcaster, it would then enable he or she, the producer or the creator, to then leverage the content that's been publicly supported for any type of platform, whether it's Bell or Rogers or Netflix or Hulu or, or whatever. Yes, exactly. The thing to remember that is, is that every television series is in fact a little business, a startup, you know, and from it, 
you know, we create a lot of uh, value for Canada because we not only is there the entertainment value, but we produce it in the country. Therefore, there are a lot of jobs created. Lots of businesses are supported through it. And then this product gets distributed and brings revenues back to the company. So each each television series can be seen as a little startup, but it has to come from a creator place. At this time, that's what the market, the, the international market is looking for. And the reason why, as someone who spent time in government and thinking about public policy, both from the kind of basic principles of behind public policy, but also thinking a bit about political economy and the feasibility of different changes, you know, on one hand, you, you might think, well, the system has remained in place for so long, it seems immune to reform. There must be some political explanation for why we've not seen the types of reforms that you've talked about. On the other hand, at the risk of sounding idealistic, I, I have some optimism about the idea that you've just put forward, because it seems to me all of the major players involved in the question, the broadcasters, the creators, even political actors across the political spectrum, it seems to me ought to see in this idea something that appeals to their either self-interest or to their basic ideas or set of or, or set of values. I don't know if you ag- agree with that. Uh, um, the film and television industry has traditionally failed to speak in one voice and to had to agree on ideas. I think I think the broadcasters would uh, not be happy to see control of the Canada Media Fund slip out of their grasp, certainly. And although developing series is a very important part of the equation and one that actually doesn't get, hardly gets any financing in the current system, I mean, we the producers would still need money for financing international marketplaces uh, in order to uh, distribute the product. But the reason why I say uh, it it seems to me your idea has the potential for a a degree of broad-based support, if the reform resulted in the media fund now being um, driven by creators and not by broadcasters, one way you might try to mitigate criticism from the broadcasters is you could end um, the requirement that they pay levies so that the media fund became fully funded by public resources. Yes. Now, now we, we'd we have to look at, I mean, I don't know historically going backwards how it came to be that the broadcasters were required to put money into the Canada Media Fund. It seems to me that uh, it's some kind of a tax that is intended in some way to repay the Canadian people for the services or the airwaves or whatever it is that the Canadian people... Oh, I know what it is. They've had a protected market, the uh, broadcasters, right? They, they've There's been a ban on foreign ownership. So I think that, that mo- the, the money that they've contributed to the media fund has been in return for something, but I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I agree that there, there probably was some logic to it, especially 
especially since at the end of the day, they were the ones almost exclusively, in fact, exclusively benefiting from accessing the fund. But as part of a major reconceptualization of the role of public policy, you might consider revisiting the levies. You might consider even increasing the size of the media fund in the short term to address any concerns that creators or producers might have about access to resources in this new model. It it just seems to me that there are, you know, if one agrees with your vision in principle, there are then basic adjustments that can be made to to try to improve feasibility. And, you know, one thing, uh, Jill, at the McDonald Orient, yes, we're committed to evidence-based policy, but we also don't operate in the abstraction. You know, we're based in Ottawa, and so we're thinking oftentimes about how to design or to talk about or to advance a particular set of ideas that is going to connect uh, with policymakers. And so, you know, I understand that there's been an apprehension to touch this policy area, even though I think most governments have recognized that it's had its best before date some time ago. And what what motivates me so much about your vision is not just that I think it's right, but I think that with the right set of design parameters, I think it's something that could conceivably get across the line. What's very interesting is that since we we had our initial conversation about this, two producers in the United States, quite famous ones, Ron Howard and Brian Glazer, announced a new initiative called Impact Imagine, uh, in which they are doing exactly this. They are creating an eight-week accelerator program based on Y Combinator, which is the the same Silicon Valley accelerator program that I've been looking at and that I know a number of startups that have gone through. And they're accepting creators from anywhere in the world. And they believe that it's time to be innovative about how we create. And so the applications closed last week on the 22nd of July. So we'll see how that that works out for them. But I, I think it, it goes to show that certainly people who are not in a protected system like Canada's are thinking exactly this way and that content can be profitable. And I think, as you're suggesting, I do believe that if we begin to work in this way, we can move ourselves out of kind of a protected government financed system into a profitable one that uh, an industry that stands on its own. And I think that you know, in so many ways is what makes your vision so compelling. Uh, you know, it seems to me a big part of the current model, either implicitly or explicitly at different points in history, not necessarily now, but at least partly at, at its origins, had a kind of pessimistic view about the potential for Canadian content and for Canadian creators to compete in, in a small L liberal model. And the, the view was that we needed protection, that we needed 
public subsidies. It was a very much a, a defensive poise. And I think what I find so compelling about your vision, Jill, is that you're a bit cocky. You, you know, there's a bit of uh, a, a bit of swagger uh, to your vision. The idea that no, we we can get out there, and actually, there's a whole host of reasons why we're well placed, not just to compete, but to succeed. And and you know what we really need is the right set of policies to enable it. And so you're willing to put a real bet on um, Canadian content and Canadian creators. And I I, I think you know I, I think it, it, it's it's just such an exciting vision that you have. Well, you know. Um- one of the saddest parts of my job when I when I was the president of the, of the Writers Guild of Canada was signing letters for Canadian creators to get their green card so they could move down to the U.S. Canadian creators are very frustrated by the system here. They they want to make great shows. Most of them are incredibly patriotic. They're they're interested in telling the the stories of their own country. They don't get those opportunities. They go down to the US and they thrive and they do really well. But most of them would rather live at home in Canada. And um, I'm really optimistic about Canadian creators and the Canadian production industry. We're we're completely world class. We're always vying to be Netflix's number two provider of content. We're just sort of neck and neck with the UK behind the US. Our stuff plays all over the world. Our children's television is a massive worldwide success. People come from all over the world to have Canadians write and create their shows. So yeah, I I am incredibly optimistic. And yeah, I do have a bit of a swagger about Canadian creators and the kinds of programming that Canadians can make. Well, I'm just uh, so glad that we met and that we've met in this, you know, this exciting moment. Um, I, you know, as I think I said when we met, I had some of these impulses, some of these predispositions, but meeting you and getting to better understand the evolution of the industry and it, the interaction with the public policy framework has only sharpened and enriched uh, my understanding. And I'm pleased to tell listeners that it is our intention in the, in the, in the coming months to expand on some of the ideas that Jill's articulated today in the form of a a policy paper that will start to get at some of the design parameters, some of the basic policy questions that will be essential to building the public and political support for this type of optimistic reform. So if people are interested, I would encourage you to stay tuned. Jill, as we wrap up, uh, is there anything that I've missed or anything that you want to elaborate on that you think we've not given sufficient attention to as, as we try to help people think about the review that the government's undertaking and some of the possibilities, exciting possibilities that can stem from possible reform? Well, I just, I want to add that the accelerator program model offers us the opportunity also to 
deal with some of the inequities that have been in the system and help us bring the unheard voices into the foreground much more quickly than we would have otherwise. You know, we we have issues around right now in Canada around, you know, there are very few women working in the industry. There's a lack of diversity. They, we're not hearing a lot of Indigenous voices. But if we move into this accelerator program, what we can do is begin to get those stories and those creators up to speed fast, get their product market ready so that we can we can change this uh, problem. And then, you know, uh, with women, we have a lot of advanced and mid-career Canadian screenwriters and creators who are ready to run shows. So we put them through the accelerator program, we get their shows market ready, and then we kind of solve many problems all at once because then we have women leading the shows so they hire more women and and the workplaces become safer girls have a different kind of role model there are more rules for women you know and and this extends into all areas of diversity so i think it, it's got the potential to deal with that issue as well that's a great point and uh, j- just just uh, for if it's not self-evident the reason why this new model would enable that kind of focus is by unlocking the resources or severing the media fund resources from the broadcaster driven process it would enable a wider range of creators to be able to, to be able to pursue those funds and you could even conceive of a scenario where the government set targets or earmarked certain amounts of the fund to target these new and minority voices and and that that's something that would be much more possible in the model that Jill's describing. Exactly. Exactly. And we won't solve those problems by having a few, you know, new Indigenous writers added to the mix or a few new women getting, you know, a director internship. But we will solve those problems by having those shows created by those new voices because you can solve the problem from the top instead of from the bottom. Well, that th- this has been um, just as, as lightning as our conversation some time ago. I look forward to talking through these issues more as, as we develop these ideas for the purposes of a policy paper. Because as you said, I think at the outset, the time just seems right for uh, new and fresh thinking. And it seems to me uh, as Canadians become more and more familiar and accustomed to accessing content across all of these different platforms, they're going to want to see Canadian more and more Canadian content, as will people around the world. So uh, I look forward to, to working with you more on this, and I, I we're very grateful for your time today. I suspect listeners will enjoy it as much as I have. So, so thank you, Jill. Thank you. And congratulations. Most importantly, congratulations for your new professional involvement with Women in View. Do you want to just take a moment? I'd be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to talk for a moment about Women in View and maybe 
where people, if interested, can find some more information? Uh, well, womeninview.ca is our website. Uh, we advocate on behalf of women in the film and television industry. We'll be releasing our latest on-screen report this fall, which documents the number of women working in creative positions across the country on publicly funded television series and uh, films. And over the next year, we'll be launching a new action plan to bring women to 50% in the industry. Oh, that, that's great. Uh, I would look forward to seeing that. So thank you for your time, uh, Jill. And thank you to listeners for listening to the most recent episode of Pod Blast Canada, McDonald-Laurie Institute's weekly podcast series. Thanks for listening. I think that's it, Jill. Is that okay? That was good. I told you I'd talk long. Look at that an hour. <laughs>